dare great things for Christ. Christ calls us to dare great things. In the marketplace, as well as in the mission field, there has never been a time like the present for the spirit of the Catholic entrepreneur. Now is the time for men and women of great courage and great vision to engage our church and our culture. Now is the time to dare great things. And here is your host as we dare great things, Father Nathan Cromley, the president and founder of the St. John Institute. We all know that Christ makes a difference, but what difference does he make in leadership? Is there anything distinctively different about the way Christians approach leadership with respect to the way that seculars approach leadership? What difference does Christ make? In this second of a six-part series, we examine the impact of Christ upon our creative energies, our ability to think outside the box and to create a whole new context for our ideas. Surprisingly, this is something we've done throughout the history of the church and something we'll keep doing today. So what is the Christian difference? What's the Christian genius when it comes to leadership? I'm really excited about this question because there doesn't seem to be a lot about it. I mean, there are books out there about the Christian styles of management. There's Christian values that are echoed in the workplace. And I understand all that, and those are all important things, but what's the difference that Christ makes in every form of leadership? So in our businesses, of course, he's going to make a difference, but is it, is it palpable, right? And that's what a lot of people struggle with. They come to the St. John Leadership Network because they say, how do I make my Christian faith actually echo profoundly there in the workplace? And then we kind of stumble. Because what the answer comes back, well, you can't really proclaim Christ, you know, in a secular environment, uh, in an overt fashion, because, you know, that's simply not acceptable today to do that for any kind of religion, right? So then, but then we're stuck. So either you're a privately owned company where you say the heck with it, we're going to do that in our working environment. And I'd say, congratulations, that's wonderful. But on the other hand, like a lot of people say, well, I I simply can't. We're not at a privately owned company or we are, but the the company's ownership refuses to take a stance for that kind of thing. And so we don't want to lose our jobs. And yet at the same time, we're Christians. So where's the interface between our environment that can be secularized and our faith, which is decisively, you know, claimed for Christ. And I'd like to say it's the same question for a mom or a dad who's at home. It's the same struggle because the question comes, what if all my friends, what if everyone around me has a whole different tack? What if I'm on a school board and the school board just has a whole different optic and they put religion on the side, which is what usually happens. They say religious sentiments are personal sentiments. We don't, they don't have a place here in a public sphere. And so we all say, okay, well, on the one hand, I get to preserve my opinion, but on the other hand, we're now creating an environment where our children can't grow up with that the context of Christianity unless we send them to a special school. And it's not just in schools, of course, it's across the board from, from hospitals to workspace environments where we, we create a kind of bubble where we say all religions are safe as long as they're private. The fact is, though, that when a religion is kept private, two things happen. One, the believer themselves is not living the fullness of their faith because our faith demands a certain amount of public witness, obviously. But then number two, the environment itself becomes dictatorially anti-faith. 
It's not a matter of it simply being neutral and individuals having their opinions. That's stage one. But in any evolution of any psychological construct like a, a, a social uh, context of values, we all know that whatever is prevailing will tend to stay the same and that that prevailing sentiment becomes the official norm. When the official norm is one, not just of public policy, but in our own minds, this is the way it should be. Our young people grow up thinking that faith is something that keeps your heart warm, but that in fact, where the values really are shaped and where people really are serious, God is on the outside. And that's why we have to find a way to, as Christians, uh, bring our faith into this culture and bring it effectively. And so you say, well, obviously this is going to be done in the various spots where we are leaders and where Christians are in a leadership position. And so you've come here because you're saying, all right, we have this leadership position and we are people in authority, in power. How do we do this? How do we, on the one hand, not offend people because we don't want to offend people, but on the other hand, how do we lead effectively as Christians? And I want, I want to say that there is a way and that that way is a beautiful way and that that's what we're trying to do here with you. So first step, what difference does Christ actually make when it comes to leadership? Is this whole idea of Christian leadership just something that we made up? Or is it actually something that's effective and, and, and true and substantial? The answer is absolutely substantial. And we take our pattern in ourselves for our own leadership as Christians from Jesus Christ. And we say, how did he lead when he was on the earth? After all, he is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so he is the, the, the epitome of all leadership. And the thing about Christ that's wonderful is that his leadership is perfect. Even though leadership is a human thing and is the exercise of a human intelligence in a human construct, Christ's divinity doesn't extinguish true humanity. It elevates it. And that means that the fact that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh means that we have in Christ an example of what God can do with us if we let him. So we basically have two ways of operating. This is, of course, from a Christian point of view of the Christian theology, right? But from a Christian point of view, you have two ways of operating. You can either operate in the flesh, as St. Paul would say, or letting just the sinful patterns of life dominate your humanity, in which case your leadership will be one of greed and of pride and infected with self in all kinds of different ways. Or it could be a redeemed leadership a leadership in the spirit, a leadership in the Holy Spirit, of course, the spirit of Christ, where we exert ourselves in and through his grace. Now, the leadership, in a sense, stays the same, in a sense, in the, in the sense of its structure. Leadership is the same for both. Whether you're a secular person or you're a person of faith, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to come up with vision you have to be able to strategize effectively about that vision. You need to be able to execute in a changing environment and you need to bring other people along with you, right? So that connection with those, with your followers and, and making a team. There's, there's no way around it. That is the simple structure of every true act of leadership, be it Christian or be it secular. The difference is in the way that it's done. 
a Christian will do it differently because a Christian has the influx of the Holy Spirit of God operating in their intelligence and in their will as they think of these visions and strategize and execute and form a team of people behind them to carry on their legacy. All four of those operations are still done, but they're done with the help of God and the inspiration of God. And there's just a terrific difference when you've got somebody thinking about things on their own and you've got somebody thinking of things as an instrument of God in that same playing field. Huge difference, right? It's like, what's the difference that Christ makes in leadership? It's the difference that God makes in leadership. And if we look at the Bible and look at the life of Christ, we see that written large. So let's try it. Let's, let's look at what we can apply for our own life in our modern context. Would you like to hear more from Father Nathan? Join the St. John Leadership Network and receive a two-minute glance at the gospel every Sunday morning right to your phone. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. When Christians look at Christ, we look at him through the eyes of faith, which means that while we understand his humanity was exactly the same as our humanity in its context, in its structure, and its genuine nature, we also understand that that humanity was united to the divinity of Christ in the unity of his divine person. So we don't have to get into all of that right now, but it simply means that we can read here in his life the same story as so many others. But the Christian message has a culture and an imagination to it that's unique. And it's kind of hard to decipher it because it's one that's shaped a lot of our own imaginations and our own cultural matrix that we see the world through uh, for, for most of us. Uh, but it's actually distinct from other systems of thought and other religions. It's what makes us unique in the, in the Christian West anyway, in that we have embodied this culture and made it the dominant context for thought. Some of the things that we might take for granted, for example, are actually part and parcel of the Christian story. For example, that good guys win in the end, right? Or the idea of a fire that never goes out or dies. That idea that light always scatters the darkness or the, the context of heroes and that each one of us is a hero in the eyes of God. What a beautiful and wonderful thought. And it's very Christian, as a matter of fact. Or the idea of the dignity of the poor who have the same rights and value as anyone else. All these kind of concepts uh, forge a, a style of life and a, a context for thought that's properly Christian, that comes from the gospel and is embodied in the life of Christ. Now, I want us to look especially at the way that the life of Christ epitomizes a creative spirit. Many of us in our leadership fail because we place ourselves too much in the box, in the context of the confines that have already been given to us, either the tradition that's been handed on to us in the way things have already been done, or the limitations that we can't take our, seem to take our eyes from about where we are at financially or are the people that we're struggling with. We have a real hard time letting go and doing something new. And because of that, we can feel like our leadership is inconsequential. And that in the end, it doesn't really matter what we do, that we're going to find ourselves making the same results. And nothing will kill a leader quicker 
than feeling like they are already predetermined just to, to carry things out the way that they've already been done. I'm not going to make an influence, in other words, unless somehow or other it's going to flow from within me where I can own it. And even if I'm doing the same thing everyone else has done, I get to do it with a, an investment, a personal investment of myself into what I'm doing. There's always a seed of creativity in my leadership. And that creative spirit of vision is what allows me to make an impact. And obviously where my vision is allowed to soar, the freer, the more profound or the more enticing my impact is going to be for everyone around me. And so it's a good thing for leaders to be creative, to be out of the box, to be able to think of something and do something pushed by the spirit of God instead of looking at the same things that are done time and time again in the spirit of the world. And we see this embodied in Christ. Jesus was given a context as well. And in many ways, his context put him at a disadvantage. When you want to look for entitlement, you don't see any of that in the life of Christ. Look, for example, at the poverty that his mother and father uh, uh, reared him in. They couldn't even afford a goat or a lamb to sacrifice for the act of redemption in the temple. In fact, they have to sacrifice two turtle doves, the gift of the poor. Well, we all know what that means. Socially, that means you're excluded. And sure enough, not only was Jesus from a, a little town way up in the countryside, away from the center of power and culture, but it doesn't even seem like he had much of a formal education. They, when, when the people of his town ask, who is this? They say, where did he get all this knowledge? Right? Because they, they understand he didn't study. He didn't go to some university. Where did he get all this knowledge? And so being excluded from the, the center of his culture, being excluded from the benefits of, of strong finance, being excluded from the benefits of a strong education, Jesus himself you know, epitomized the, the marginalized of the world. And he himself was marginalized. He would have spoken Hebrew with an accent. We know this because of what the servant girl speaks about Simon Peter coming from Galilee, not speaking the same accent uh, as, as the normal people of Jerusalem. And his entire country was already overwhelmed and dominated by an occupying force. So his very culture was marginalized with respect to the Roman Empire. And then within his culture, he was marginalized because of where he was born and the lack of education and the poverty that ensued from that. Uh, even in his family, he stood out. He didn't have a large family. He didn't have brothers and sisters. He had cousins, obviously, and, and other people who were related to him, but no brothers and sisters in his family. Uh, and his family wielded no political influence. It seemed like in the city, for example, when he announced who he was, that his own townsmen rose up and tried to put him to death, right? It was not like St. Joseph and Our Lady were somehow these great political figures in the town. As a matter of fact, they used the name of his, of his father as a kind of insult, a social insult towards Jesus, right? Uh, they say, isn't Joseph his father? Where did he get all this, right? In the end, you really try to understand Christ. You see that even his own apostles— didn't understand the full breadth of his mission. He had to trust in only one person, it seems, and that's his virgin mother, who really seemed to understand what his whole mission was about. And so when you see the solitude of his, of his confines and what he was up against, 
You know, if he speaks the truth, he'll get crucified. If he doesn't speak the truth, then he'll not fulfill the mission that the Father gave him. But if he fulfills that mission, how is he going to do this in a way that's effective and actually save the world? It takes a creative mind to do that. And I want to just say that it's a lot like us. In our environments, we're facing every day the situation of things not being easy and of being given nothing but challenges. And if we look at the challenges and all the ways that we can fail and we keep our eyes there, we'll never even try. And that's exactly what a lot of leaders do. They stop trying. They say it's not going to help. They say nothing's going to change. And we just put our heads down and do our jobs, but we leave the world bereft of a wonderful creativity that does in fact flow from Jesus Christ and does in fact flow from his Holy Spirit. Because when you look at the life of Christ, he did not let those confines determine the course of his life. Instead, we see all kinds of innovation in him. Here's an example. He, he lives as a celibate. Now, there, celibacy was not something that was embraced at, in any kind of, as any kind of social norm at that time. And yet there's Christ who's celibate. Well, that's something brand new. Where did he get that gumption from? <laughs> well, from his father, from God. When he's connected with God, suddenly he's remaking the social context to a degree by making a stance that this is something that he, in fact, has embraced full celibacy. He remains poor. He doesn't see the poor poverty, in other words, as something to run away from, but he sees it as something that he can fill and even use to his advantage. Um, at the cross, he, he lets everyone run away from him. Now, all of his apostles flee from him. John evidently comes back. He's only got one apostle at the cross and Our Lady, for example. And there, you know, he's rather alone. You look at all the followers, where do they all go? He lets them go. It seems like he's not afraid, in other words, to say, I can do this with just one. I can do this with just Our Lady's faith. I can do this with just John. You see, Christ is creating a new way. He's not afraid of thinking outside of the box. We see those limitations and we say, there's no way he can ever overcome them. And Jesus says, absolutely, I can. In fact, that's the power of God to work within the limitations and to work them in a whole new way by the strength that comes from within, by the strength that God gives us and puts deep, deep down in our hearts. Uh, it, it, look, for example, at the way he redefined the context and the place of women in the world, reaching out to them and speaking to them, healing them, but not only women, but lepers as well, and the sick, and those that you weren't allowed to even touch Jesus lays hands on, right? He challenges the ruling powers that are there. Uh, he doesn't say, well, since you're in charge, I'm going to be oppressed by you. Instead, with intelligence, he asks some questions uh, and he challenges them and corrects them even to their face. Other times he turns to them and he invites them. Think of Nicodemus or the way that he taught in the temple or look at all of John 8 where he dialogues with, with them. He, he looks at the structures of power that are there and he rises up to meet them, right? Uh, not only that, but the social structures that are there. He, he challenges them as well. He eats and takes his meals with sinners and with tax collectors. He doesn't fast in the way that, that they're supposed to in, 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 in the context of their time. 
Um, he it, it offers his life even into death freely and joyfully. He embraces suffering. He embraces the betrayal. He embraces the solitude of the garden. He even embraces death. Right? So I'll just give you a whole bunch of examples of the originality of Christ's life because his originality can inspire us to be the same. A Christian who follows God, in other words, is living by the spirit that is in Christ. And that's not a spirit that says that the context that we've been given and that society considers as normal must be definitive. On the contrary, it's a spirit that looks at the, at the playing field that we've been given and sees new possibilities to express the depth of the truth that's in God and the depth of the truth that's in ourselves. We need, in other words, to follow Jesus into our own creative leadership. Would you like to start your Thursday mornings with a scriptural leadership lesson? Join the St. John Leadership Network, where Father Nathan hosts a 30-minute call at 6.30 a.m. in all four U.S. time zones. To learn more, go to www.stjohnleadershipnetwork.org member and join for free today. What excites me about the life of Christ is that he, says, he shows us how to deal with the limitations that are given to us. You can look at limitations in two ways. You can look at them as obstacles, or you can look at them as contours of new expression. And here's what I mean. If you look at the riverbanks, for example, the banks on the two sides of a river, you can say, ah, oh, that limits the river. Or you could say that those riverbanks actually allow the river to exist. You know what a river is without riverbanks? It's a mud puddle, right? <laughs> the water needs the riverbanks in order to course and bring its life to the world. Well, in the same way, when I see obstacles in my path, so to speak, or, or things that I can't change, I don't have to become dismayed and say that those things now define me and they put me into a kind of prison that I can't get out of. And now I have to do this and have to do this so I can't effectively lead. Take secularism, for example. There's a great example. We say, well, we're Christians, and so since we're Christians, we're upset because we can't be Christians in the workplace because they've put me in a secular environment and my bosses absolutely refuse to allow me to express my faith in one way or the other. Well, you could look at that and say, that's going to cause me to be fatalistic. And if I'm fatalistic, I'm going to then say that there's no way that I can effectively lead. And, and then you meet Christ who says, just tell me about your context and tell me about how that is an obstacle to you. Look at my context. Look at all the disadvantages I came from, from losing my father, you know, at some point here before I went to my cross, to having have my mother move at least five times, you know, in, in the course of her life, to having, you know, my disciples betray me and run away from me, people trying to kill me, picking up stones to stone me, living outside of towns, I mean, he had a role with all kinds of things that were thrown at him. And yet that's exactly what he did. He looked at those contours of his life as a way for him to tell his story because his source was not himself and it wasn't the permissions that other people gave him. He was living out of his relationship with God. The very first lesson of a Christian leader is that our leadership flows from our relationship with God and our reference point goes back to God and therefore, we can give ourselves permission to rethink the context and to take what seems like an obstacle to a certain way of thinking 
and use it, in other words, as a way of expressing a deeper wisdom and living by a deeper light. Our vision goes deeper and goes further because our vision sees the playing field in a whole different context of meaning. We're not just here to make money or we're not just here to make a product. We're here in order to express something deep down inside of who we are as we make this world a better place in conformity with a vision of human dignity and genuine advancement that comes from God himself. And so what I need to do as a leader is let Jesus's truth and the Holy Spirit of God speak a new story through the context that we've been given. Express itself in a new way. Allow myself to be creative in Christ. The difference is that fatalism sees an obstacle and says this is what's going to keep me from being successful. Whereas a Christian creativity sees an obstacle and says this is what's going to make my story beautiful and resound. It all comes from your attitude. And your attitude of a, as a Christian is one of constant hope and confidence in God. When David saw Goliath, he didn't see his imminent downfall. He saw God's imminent victory. When Isaiah saw the suffering servant, he didn't see the demise of God. He saw God's splendid plan of expressing his deep love for Israel. When Abraham saw the stars in the heaven, he was taught by God to see there the quantity of the children that would be given to him through his one single son in his old age. When Moses saw the burning bush and heard the voice of God, he was given a vision. You will lead my people into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And he was seized by the power of what could be instead of defining the world according to the way it was. It's not a lack of truth to be creative. It's actually a fullness of truth because the truth of this world isn't given by the world itself. The truth of this world is spoken by the word of God. And we who believe therefore are a blessing to this world because we take that power and that creative energy of the newness that is in God and we bring it through our leadership to the context that we're in. I'll say it this way. You're able to proclaim Christ wherever you are by bringing the power of your faith in Christ to bear on the circumstances around you. Let's not, in other words, look at the world and say it must be such. Let's look at the world with the eyes of God and say, this is what greatness it can achieve. Our hope-filled positivity is part and parcel of what makes us so powerful as leaders. We are not fatalistic when we have our grounding in God. On the contrary, we see that God can use all things in order to accomplish his beautiful design, that he can write straight with crooked lines, that he could take the life of sinful people and turn them into the lives of saints, that he can take the dry ground and bring water from it, that he can make quail rain down from heaven and bring food in circumstances where we thought there were none. He could take a country enslaved called Israel, enslaved to eat and country into the promised land. God can do anything. God can do everything. And when we lead with God, we open our hearts and our minds to the people. Dare great things for Christ. Share your feedback with Father Nathan. Send us an email at info at stjohninstitute.org. That's info at stjohninstitute.org.
And don't forget to subscribe to premium video content to form, unite, and inspire you at Eagle Eye Pro on our website, eagleeyeministries.org. That's eagleeyeministries.org.